Donald Antrim is the author of three novels and is a regular contributor to The New Yorker. He has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, and the Dorothy and Louis B. Cullman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. He lives in New York City. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Hello. Thank you. Nice to be here. The book is called The Afterlife. It's not a novel, it's a memoir, so the first uh, obvious question is, is it true? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I mean... Whatever truth is. Yeah, you know, I, I, I had never really intended to write a memoir, and I didn't really even want to write a memoir. Uh, and if it hadn't been for the pressure, emotional pressure, that had been sort of exerted uh, throughout the course of my entire life uh, by my relationship with my mother, and then and then also by her death, I, I, you know, I wouldn't probably wouldn't have done anything like this. When I did begin to uh, to write this, uh, it came immediately. The only way I was going to be able to do it was to uh, to, to try to adhere as closely I, as, as I could to uh, to my own memories. The the, the book is, uh, I think, spotted with qualifications. I'm, I'm always aware of trying to remember to the best best of my ability or to let a reader know that I'm, that I'm doing my best to recall in, in certain parts when I was younger and so on. But fundamentally the, uh, the impulse is, is toward the truth in, in my memory as well as uh, the, the truth in the, in the record, in the historical record or in the, in the, the, the story of, uh, of her life and our lives together. Mm-hmm. I was asked about this you know, fairly frequently when the book was first published because it, it was published in 2006. Pretty much at the moment that the James Fry James Frey controversy was at full, and it's, of course it's bubbling up again with various memoirs that have been found to be uh, bogus. There, there are probably many fine memoirs that are that are that, that contain embellishment. I felt a, a, a great uh, responsibility in doing this. I really was writing a book about myself and another person, about myself and my mother, uh, primarily. It's not a biography, and it's not an autobiography. It's uh, it's not in, it's not all inclusive. It's not encyclopedic. Nonetheless, I, I was really very impressed by the degree to which moral or even ethical responsibilities to wade in as I as I worked on this. I was always uh, wanting to get the accurate picture. Yeah, get, get something that felt accurate. Get something that felt as close to accurate as I could. And, yeah. and always let the reader know that that's what, was trying, what I was trying to do. It's particularly uh, important to do that, I thought, uh, it, 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 in this story, because for many years of her life she was an alcoholic. Reality and the circumstances is all a little more subjective. One doesn't necessarily know what the truth in, in, in daily life even might be. It's a disease. Yeah. yeah, sure, and 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 so for me, the idea of embellishment was would, would have been prohibitive to writing the book at all. It would have been a violation of, of the terms that I was trying to set for myself. Yeah, well, in fact, you're so hard on your mother that uh, it's not as if you're trying to pretty her up. No, not at all. I mean, I, uh, I, 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 and again, the effort wasn't the, the impulse was not to to really be hard on her in that way. But as I got through, uh, as, I, as I began to, to, to write, I began to, to understand over the years, this went on for several years, and this was, not, you know, this was something that I, that I had to, to walk away from periodically. Over the years, I came to feel that if I didn't render 
a fairly accurate picture of my mother, particularly in the very last years of her life. I couldn't really claim a, a fuller or more honest emotional involvement. I, I think I'm part of myself too in the book, but in the end, I don't. I don't think that there are the few occasions in which I'm going ahead and, and describing. Uh, her in her most uh, so sort of severe, extreme states. I don't think that those descriptions or those uh, stories within stories necessarily uh, defeat her as also a lovable and or a creative, uh, interesting, and uh, very challenging person. I, I felt that the portrait had to be a portrait through my impressions. It was the only way I could do it. The way that you, the, the fact that you wrote it. So I mean, one, one my question: yes. Why air your dirty laundry why like this? It? But uh, we live in such a, a confessional age. But is it is it one of these things that uh, you know writers talk about the fact that they they can't help but write it? Well, you know, once committed to the project, once on to you know on the, in, into the thing, it ceases to be a confessional operation for me as a writer. It began to be a writing, an occasion to write. It began to be a, a way to write something. I was learning while I was doing this, doing new things. I had never written in the novels this kind of consistent or sustained, or tried to write this kind of sustained uh, portrait. Again, this, this question of dirty laundry or how, how does a writer feel? How do you feel about having this kind of material out there? I, I, I've been asked that too, mm. you know? And the answer is that I... I've got to come up with a new question. No, no, no. It's okay. I think it's a reasonable... These are reasonable questions. These are good questions. Because they're questions that I thought about all the time. The question, they, they, these were problems that I, I had all the time. I mean, I felt all of that. Mm -hmm. The book was serialized in The New Yorker. That was something of a gift, actually. But it was also a kind of a trial. Because it meant that I had to publish this thing again and again. I didn't get to just publish it once. I had to go... I had to sort of go through it over and over, about five times. And it was, it was very draining, and it was very emotionally, very frightening to publish. I, I, I would kind of run away uh, for weeks after, you know, sort of, I, I, I felt like I was in, in a kind of psychological hiding after, after doing this. But eventually, I came to feel that what I was doing was also trying to to be a writer. I was trying to write something. I was trying to really write into a set of problems. Mm -hmm. And they were writing problems, but they were also personal. And finally, I began to have the feeling that what mattered in this was not so much that I had aired some, you know, old, old bad stories here and there, or I, you know, but that if it was working at all, the book was going to succeed for, for, for readers. It wasn't necessarily going to be a book that would be read about me or about her. It's it's also an experience, I hope, for a reader in its own right. If I if I give up a little information, the best I can do is, or a lot, the mm. best I can do is try to do that with some amount of dignity and some amount of honesty and some amount of courage. And go ahead, and if I'm going to say to a reader, well, here's a story that I'm going to tell, I have to tell the story. I have to do it. Uh, in, in as generous a manner as I can. Well, so, plus the relationship between the mother and the son is just such a universal uh, sure. theme that, uh, and father, of course, too. But in literature, that, uh, that as you say, it's, it's not necessarily specific to your 
uh, you're, you're giving the specifics, but it's a it's a fascinating relationship uh, for everyone. Yeah, and I didn't really write the book. I didn't write the book in order to set the record straight or get a little late hour revenge. And it wasn't it wasn't any of that. Uh, finally, over years doing this, it's finally it's finally a matter of writing and 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 to a degree, you know, surviving what you're writing while you do it. As 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 the problems in writing the book became the kind of problems that a that I think a, a writer also really wants to have. I found that I was writing a book that I almost couldn't write. That I was writing something that was close to, close to the the limit of what I could do, and uh, you know, keep my stability and, and and so on in the world. Now, three years after the fact, or after having finished it, and two years after having published it, as difficult as it was uh, to do, and as as really frightening. And I could talk about why. Yeah, I guess the obvious question is: Is this some therapy for you? Yes and no. It, it, writing it has brought about a lot of change in, in my life. And I don't mean material change. I don't mean uh, I now have a, a different income or something like that. What I mean is, is that I feel very, very differently about myself um, as a person in the world. And also as a writer, I feel very differently about what, what I might want to try to do to really to, to be engaged with this for the rest of my life. The two things you said that you felt uh, different, and earlier you said frightened, you were frightened, and it was frightening. It's it entirely frightened, right? And to do so was to violate many of the major taboos and prohibitions that had defi- defined my life, defined my character. For all of us, or for many of us, uh, I, I think many of us can feel some prohibition against speaking against uh, revealing, against um, even trying to come to new understandings of, of, of our families. So I was encountering, you know, consistently a taboo and, and, and trying to push through it. All I was going to say about that, though, was that in spite of how frightening it was at times, or in spite of how the difficult the, uh, the responsibility to fidelity in storytelling became, it was a great, great trip in some ways. It was a, uh, a learning curve, <laughs> and it was, I think, very high. And I, and I feel like I'm only just beginning now, several years later, to, to actually learn, to actually come to understand some of what I learned. In a, in a general way, about writing in some way, what I could do or be as a writer, how I could proceed. Specifically? Well, the novels, the three novels are... First, it's called Like Mr. Robinson for a Better World, and the second is called The Hundred Brothers. It's actually about a hundred brothers in, in, a, in a one night in this uh, great uh, hall that they that they occupy. These are novels that proceeded from a, a kind of a conceit, an idea. They weren't unlike this memoir. They weren't directly dealing with personal history or my family's history. Primal memory. Yeah, for me as a writer, I can I can I can look at them. Even as I was writing them, I was aware that that, that they, they did contain and do contain a kind of encoded autobiography in the way that much that any of us will ever write will. But it's done through metaphor, and it's done to a to a degree through a certain amount of a fantasy. I mean, I mean, a book about a hundred brothers is a book about a hundred brothers. It's we're working with a different kind of suspension of disbelief, and these books were were a lot of fun to write and they were um, an R and I like them they're, they're, they're pretty funny 
And in some ways, I think that they are, in fact, dealing with the same history, but they are dealing with it in a kind of detached, in a, in a, not a detached way, but, but, a, but a more uh, roundabout way. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Bartholomew being a, yeah. an important influence. And, Donald uh, Bartholomew. How do you pronounce his name? Bartholomew. Bartholomew. The piece that you read out for the New Yorker talks about him uh, buying up a Galveston or a city yeah, or right, something, right, which is, right, as you right. say, absurd. But the, the point I think, I think that you made was the fact that he kept that voice consistently throughout. He didn't uh, sway from it. He kept the contract. Bartholomew is one of those writers, I think, uh, uh, who, who readers and other writers alike can, can think of in some ways as something of a magician. I mean, he, for me, he was a, a, a big influence because uh, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. He was um, writing these uh, great stories like uh, The Balloon and The Glass Mountain. And this is in 60 stories, is it, or 40? 60 or? stories, 40 stories. Yeah, yeah those stories were, were appearing as I was growing up, as I was you know, going to school and, mm-hmm. and going to college. And so Bartholomew became one of the first writers that I read who really took the top of my head off? And there were others, uh, but he, he would be in the in the very top of that 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 list. And so his work. Now, how how can we fit in what you did with your novels his versus work is, his work is, versus what you did with the, the the memoir and then the difference? His work is very very playful and it's very very exciting to read because there's a way in which one really doesn't know what's what's going to happen. In, in, what his stories are about, and why they exist at all. They're so off the wall. They're very well. They seem very off the wall. Actually, they're formally beautiful, intellectually very nuanced, very sophisticated, uh, and very very funny as a rule. So this went into the hopper, you know, at the early age. Arthur and, and and a few other writers were were the ones who made. Uh, I, I think I know other people who feel the same. Made it possible to feel that. This thing, this this thing, writing stories, is very alive and very very uh, possible in some way for us at a, at a young age. Maybe maybe there was something here to look at. What's this? What's this? You know, those were uh, important years for for a lot of writers my age. Uh, Bartholomew was a figure. We, in an essay called "Not Knowing," he writes about his manner of proceeding. Which is not to proceed with a fixed idea or with a with a with a fully uh, sort of thought out story or an outline, which is, but is to to not to really not know what he's doing, to not know what the story is, even himself. To let it take its own course. Yeah, and he writes about the, the he writes about the utility and the useful the usefulness of anxiety. The writer's anxiety. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. It, it can be a kind of a, a scary position to occupy, right? Especially if you're writing something long, like a novel. You're saying to yourself, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what this is. You're looking so, at a blank so page. For, yeah, for, and each new page is really, really very blank. And the, and the idea that he wants to make, uh, make clear is that the writer's anxiety, the writer's adrenalized situation in relation to the story is uh, enlivening. It's, uh, it produces uh, the possibility for all kinds of unexpected uh, content, for a certain kind of spontaneity that will that will that will cause the writer to then have to, to, to ask himself, well, what is this? Well, what do I do with this? How do I how do I proceed? What have I just written? How do I read what I wrote? It sounds like he's explaining creativity. Yeah, he's he's certainly talking about it. So the novels, anyway, the novels proceeded in in a way similar to that. With the afterlife, with the the memoir, of course, that's not really 
impossible to write the same way. I mean, I mean there was anxiety though, for sure. Oh, there's, a, yeah, there's a whole like new a, kind even of more, anxiety yeah. that I've never, that I hadn't really been prepared for. I mean, I, I saw it coming when I first started to write this. I had to pretend to myself that I would never publish it. it was the only way that I could write it. Yeah. And uh, I'd never really had to do that before. I'd never really had to uh, turn my brain into two halves in that way. One half uh, knowing that I would never publish, and the other half knowing that, of course, I would if I could, if it, if it worked out, yeah. you know, if it, if, it, if it proceeded. So, so this, this, this way of working became what was unknown in, in the afterlife, that the terms of what was un, uh, would be unknown shifted. So there was still a lot of, uh, that was unknown there. There was still a lot of anxiety. Mm. Uh, like Frank, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. for example, one of the most striking things about the book that, that many commentators have, have noted is the way you distract yourself from your mother's death to talk about this purchase. It's funny, I think of Nicholson Baker, the detail you go into about that bed. The bed, yeah. Uh, yeah. But instead of uh, allowing the, the death to... Uh, to fully sink in. In, yeah. the, in the book itself, at least, yeah. you are focusing in on this consumer choice of a, of a bed. Yeah, right, really I know. humorous. Yeah, and, and that was actually uh, a, a story that within a short time after having gone through this experience, I, after her death, she died She died in a, a small town in North Carolina, in a kind of a small little dark house in a, in a rented you know, hospital bed. Yeah. And I, I, too, like her, had in many ways lived a kind of unnecessarily Spartan life in, in some ways. I went home af- after <coughs> after she died, and uh, and I found that I was uh, driven to make some kind of comfort for myself. I wasn't really thinking very clearly, you know. I mean, based on uh, this 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 idea that she hadn't lived, uh, she yeah, lived well, a it, too Spartan a life. Well, it, was, it not it, it wasn't it, it wasn't really that direct. No. But I think I was affected, and I mean, I know I was. And part of what made the story of her life and death difficult for me to tell was was the quantity of sadness, really. In so, her in her life, yeah, in her life, well, and yours too, and as a result. Together, yeah, and 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 so mm-hmm. I went home to New York pretty promptly, really. Went on this bedroom expedition, <laughs> and what lasted about. Four, four months or five months or so. Mm-hmm. It's described in the book, but I buy and return and buy and return. And nothing's right, nothing's right. Of course, nothing's ever going to be right. And, and finally, I'm, 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 it's not like I have any money and I'm spending 10000 close to seven or so thousand dollars on a mattress. It's not a, not a headboard, not a, not, you know. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so, at that point, I've kind of topped out and, uh, I send that back to ducks and, and collapse, yeah, and collapse into uh, a great relief. I collapsed into a kind of a, a great relief at the end of this trip of, of buying this bed. I hadn't done it. I hadn't. What I began to do though was uh, here and there. I told the story to people. I told people. Well, people knew that I'd been, you know doing this, and I made it into a kind of, as I did many of the stories from my childhood, I made it into a, a kind of a, a, a funny a package, really. I retail this around, four other stories from our lives together, 
And finally, an editor said, why don't you write this, why don't you write this book, you got to write this book. And my, uh, my initial reaction was, uh, I rejected the idea, absolutely, and I, and I said, you know, I'm telling a funny story here, but it's not a funny story. And not only is it not a funny story, it's a story about dying, it's a story about crushing loneliness, it's a story about... Did you get depressed after her death or not? Yeah, I did. So you suffered a, a, a clinical depression or not? I suffered. And I suffered uh, after her death, and I suffered as well after the completion of the book. Mm. You know, when people said, write this or write about her, and I rejected that, I wasn't really rejecting it, actually. I was putting it in the back of my mind and thinking about it. And, of course, it had been a preoccupation and a concern for me for years, forever, for all of my adult life and throughout my childhood. Your relationship with her. Yeah, and, 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 and at a certain point I realized, well, before writing the novels that I wrote uh, in the 90s, I'd written stories, I had tried to write about her before. When I was writing short stories and, and in my 20s and, and living in New York, I, I, I was writing, doing that thing that you, you, know, you do, you write stories and send them out and write stories. Well, they were really all about her, and they were all about us, and they were all about our family, and they weren't very good, they were kind of dead. They were depressive stories. They were really no fun to write. And I abandoned them because I wanted. I, I thought at a certain point, I thought, well, you know, no one's asking me to do this, right? No one's paying me to do it at this point. Yeah, why are you dragging yourself well, yeah, down? Why, I, I, I've got to be getting something out of this. I've got right. to at least have some pleasure in what I'm doing. So I began to write these novels. Mm. And maybe that's what I was trying to say earlier about the, 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 what's different now, is that the terms of, of pleasure are shifting. What pleasures you get as a writer? Yeah, and, and shifting toward deeper and deeper engagement with with the relationships between people and maybe less and less of an engagement with the relationships between people and the environment that's affecting them so much which is which is the case in the novels as well isn't that interesting because that's a, that's a theme that new yorker critic james wood has been uh, looking at uh, in, in criticizing the american novel for yeah that's right he has been for some time i mean he's more or less saying uh, let's not forget Chekhov, you know. Let's not yeah. forget that, that that what we're doing here is we're we're trying to find language or make language in order to enter a more nuanced, possibly more ambivalent real, uh, understanding of uh, lifeness. Of, of, yeah, 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 and of what happens between people, what happens in people's lives, what, what what's going on there. And so this is a problem of psychology and emotional life and and so on. So it's, I feel sometimes like in a way, I don't think it's really true, but I feel sort of like I've gone over to the other side a little bit. And, and, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking with Donald uh, Antrim, the uh, novelist and uh, author of memoir entitled The Afterlife. Your mother dies in the first sentence. Yeah. Of course, one can't help but think of Camus, mm. who speaks almost in an offhand way about his mother's death. Did, did that enter your mind when you started the piece off? Camus, not, not, not Camus directly, but now that you mention it, it might as well have. There is an offhandedness in the beginning because, of course, the writer is still in a state of defense, right? So, with the opening of the book, as I look at it now, as I look back at it now, when I do, I can see the anger and I can see the sarcastic uh, defense that the, the man who was writing that book, the, the boy he'd been had used to get through life. And I think what happens is that over the course of writing the book, over the course of discovering and making realizations about not just interpretations, but actual realizations, think that it, coming to understand things about her 
I probably couldn't have understood when she was alive and when the problem of her was a problem of feeling, you know, like a mortified child. So You were too engaged to get too engaged, yeah. I was much too angry. I was I was a bit too angry to see more deeply into her. Mm. So over the course of about five years of, of, of writing this book, I had to back back down uh, from that position. And this uh, sort of defining your life by an antagonism toward your mother. Right, right. Yeah. And, and it became a kind of a natural occurrence. It wasn't a deliberate effort on my part. But as I wrote, I understood the importance, really, of not judging her. I'm not judging you know, any of the, the people who make the characters in the book. I'm not setting straight, getting out my side of the story. It wasn't, it wasn't for any of that. So it was, what was it sort of to get out from underneath this block of this, this uh, straitjacket of antagonism? That yeah. And I think as the book proceeds, I think that it becomes less defended. It, and, and in the course of, of, of becoming so, I think it also becomes, as time goes on in the book, it becomes less funny. Right. I could feel, I could feel this change occurring as I wrote it. I couldn't manipulate it. I couldn't really invent that. But I could be as much as I could. I could finally try to be present for it. And that was really all I could do. And I realized in in writing this, I think one of the things that I that I did also realize was that many of my own limitations, many of my own, you know, what capacities I I had as a not only as a writer but as a as a person thinking about uh, as a, his, his own mother. And so I felt my own limitations. I felt my own, you know, restrictions. So that was an interesting time, you know, the, what is the, the curse? May you live in interesting mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I was living in interesting times for a while. <laughs> right. So. And now you don't have a sense of humor anymore because you're not angry. I, I, I have a sense of humor, but, but, I, but I'm not as determined, I think, to uh, see the world through... Through, through sarcasm. As, as a reader, uh, there's a lot of sort of irony and sarcasm up front, which takes takes me to a, a lovely uh, sequence that you write toward the end of the book about about books. Uh-huh. It's not that funny, but it's quite beautiful, I think. And I wonder if you could, just given the fact that our program is called the Bibliophile, if you might care to read a uh, passage from anywhere from. Oh, Where you start off with H.G. Wells uh, and to, uh, to talking about the Folger and the... Okay. Just to set it, was your, your father was going to give you a, a gift of a book or, or you were well, hoping father, for? My father, well, he is a literature professor. So one of the really sort of defining conditions of, of growing up in the house was the living in a world of, of books that, that he and I, during those years... We didn't really talk about that much. So I think because of the stress and the, uh, the, the great difficulty for all of us in, in, in our family, and, and I think anyone listening, you know, people who <clears throat> have grown up or lived in, in homes defined by al- alcoholism in some way, or ruled by alcoholism, I should say, is really one of the point, that this will, this, this will defeat the the potential connectedness between members in the family. It's polarizing. So I, I took on uh, books and, and reading uh, because it, they were right there in front of me. But it was also very private, even though I, w- I was in a, in a home with a, with a father who, who went away to a university and, and talked about books. Let me just... Um, one was H.G. Wells' 
The Island of Dr. Moreau, the story of a man scientist who uses a remote island as a kind of fortified preserve for his living creations, half human and half animal. The mutilated products of laboratory experiments in the 19th century pseudoscience and vivisection who run the jungle in states of agony and rage, their master. The island of Dr. Moreau spoke to me. It came in a set of Wells science fiction novels. The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, The Food of the Gods, and so on, each as far as I was concerned. A fairly thorough rendering and metaphor of some aspect of the human condition. I had C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength, which, as it turns out, are about alternate worlds only to the extent that they are, like the epics of Tolkien, also about Christianity. And I remember, too, a set of truly strange works by E.R. Edison, a mostly forgotten English writer of sometimes impenetrable medieval-style romances. Edison is the worm Ouroboros. The title refers to a dragon swallowing its own tail graphically illustrating circularity and never-endingness. Prepared me for the Nibelungenly, the Song of the Nibelung, a reading assignment set for me in the 10th grade by a German teacher as punishment for disrupting class and shirking on homework. Frau Webb thought that she was going to stump me, but I was by then very conversant with the smiting of heads and quaffing of mead, the aura of celebrated death that could be found in northern European sagas. Anyway, the books. It wasn't only their interiority that mattered to me. I cared for their materiality. A book of good weight that opened nicely to reveal clean text on grained paper functioned satisfyingly as a physical container of its familiar or unfamiliar worlds, making more concrete, more apparently real, the author's inventions. Many years after the time which concerns me here, after I was grown up, living in New York and publishing books of my own, I visited the Folger Library in Washington, where in a subterranean vault I was shown the library's immense collection of early printed works, including the world's largest accumulation of first folio and quarto editions of Shakespeare. For some reason, my guide had no problem with my handling the books, and I walked along the shelves, taking down not only Shakespeare, but Chaucer and Sir Philip Sidney. I remember opening Sidney's Arcadia, a massive and dense prose work, a sort of cosmology of Elizabethan love and politics, written for the author's sister, the Countess of Pembroke. The pages of the volume in my hand showed an almost stunning relief around each letter, the heavy impressions left by the press. The array of letters shaped into words, words into sentences, and sentences into paragraphs seemed perfect as if the book's maker had precisely known the textual disposition most likely to encourage the eye's movement down the page. Published near the close of the 16th century, the Arcadia opens with a dedication to the Countess. Here now have you, most dear, and most worthy to be most dear lady, this idle work of mine, which I fear, like the spider's web, will be thought fitter to be swept away than worn to any other purpose. For my part, in very truth, as the cruel fathers among the Greeks were wont to do to the babes they would not foster, I could well find in my heart to cast out in some desert of forgetfulness this child, which I am loath to father. But you desired me to do it, and your desire to my heart is an absolute commandment. Now it is done only for you, only to you. If you keep it to yourself, 
or to such friends who will weigh errors in the balance of goodwill, I hope, for the Father's sake, it will be pardoned, perchance made much of, though in itself it have deformities. And when I read that, again, thinking about books, as I was writing The Afterlife, it felt like a form of a statement that in some other words, in some other context, and in some other place, I might have said to my own mother about the book I was writing for and about her. Because in the end, it really did become a book for her as well as a book about her. And I hoped that what I was doing could deliver that feeling to a reader. And that's why I included that passage. So... um, Is that? Yeah. Thank you very much for the reading. Uh, Donald Antrim, who's the uh, author of the uh, memoir, The uh, Afterlife. Just in closing and staying with books, I'd like to ask you whether or not you collect books, and if you do, uh, what kinds of books do you collect? I'm not an avid collector. I mean, I'm not a real collector by any collector's standards. But I do amass books, as it turns out, and I do look for first editions of authors who I really admire. I'm not really a completist, you know. Uh, I'm not after the folded and gathered sheets of, of a, you know, from a, that's a step for the first edition. You're not, you're not a maniac. I'm not out getting all the galleys. But you would, for example, have... Uh, Donald Bartholomew's 60 uh, stories. Yeah, and I, and I have some of the original of the first editions of, of Donald Bartholomew from before that time. But I put this, you know, I've just picked these things up here and there. Yes. So I'm not a formal collector. You know, frankly, I, have a, I do have a, a kind of an ambivalent relationship to books and to writing and the whole thing because of, because of the house I grew up in. So I'm not a declared collector. I worked actually uh, at one point, 20-some-odd years ago, as an editorial assistant for an editor in New York who was a major I got to know a lot about the world. I met a lot of the people in it, and uh, you know, I understood that it wasn't a uh, uh, really going to be something that I was even going to really seriously be able to afford. To do yeah. At this point. Well, that, the thing is, though, I mean, back then you could have picked up some interesting works. That yeah. Oh, uh, and, I, and I did back even back in the eighties. I could. Well, let's see. Tom DeLillo, Paul Bowles, James Salter. Uh, so you have, you have first uh, uh, editions of a, a lot of their... Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. Because I worked in publishing as well, I, I, I stepped into the, the world of, uh, of, of book tra- trading among people who work uh, work for publishers. So everybody had sort of had, had a sideline in in, uh, in getting books here and there, you know, uh, the things that, that, it, that, that, uh, that interested us uh, that were coming out from the other, the other houses. I also, uh, I live in a house with a lot of books in it, you know, more than I know what to do know what to, to do with more than I have shelf space for so I suppose that makes me that qualifies me as, as a person with books that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I think I probably classify myself in the same realm but the, it's nice to have first editions oh it's and lovely to have first editions actually it's, it's, it's very nice it can be very nice to hold a first edition exactly and, and, and just to feel or just to know in some way that you've got a piece of the moment in some way. You've got to, you, know, you can read a book. You can read a book on, on, on a computer.
do a screen kit if you, if you had to. You can read a book in paperback. You can pick up a big one. But having a, having a nice uh, first edition or, or just a nice uh, edition at all, for me, can not exactly change uh, or necessarily fully improve my ability to read the book or to read into it. But it can affect the degree of pleasure I feel, and it can also give me a sense that I have a, I'm connected to a, to a moment in that time when 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 that book was new and current and living inside its own video. So so in a way, I think that part of the attraction in collecting and part of the attraction for book collectors in, in, in general may have something to do, you know, with a kind of emotional and, and intellectual time travel <laughs> in a way. It's a way Recording of, the of, of living in of living in a world that that, it, that has time in it. One of the things I like about the first edition is that it and it varies from author to author, the degree to which they have an input into what their initial work, just the way it's presented to the world. This is the first this is the way they would like their, right, their right. work to be presented. Ostensibly they've approved the cover art. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they looked at the design, the interior, and they said, I like that, that's okay. Some writers are more involved and engaged in that, and some are less. There, there is something uh, very, very satisfying about that actual object that comes from that actual moment in the actual life uh, of, the, of the writer. What kind of role do you play in I get pretty involved. I, yeah. I, well, I care enough about the book itself. I think I care enough about, about the way it's going to feel, the way it's going to look. I get very involved in, in, in the interior, in typeface, in kerning and, and margins, and, and, and you know I, I want the thing to really I want it to, to look. You know we're not we're not making books the way the books were made in the day of, of, of Sir Philip Sidney, but we can still make a nice book. And so I I, I I think that while we're at it, we might as well. And so I, I do get involved. And I enjoy it. I really do. Thank you very much for sharing your insights as well as the insights of your, thank your you. book. and uh, It's a real pleasure to, to speak with you. Thank you very, very much. I've been speaking with Donald Antrim. He's the author of The Afterlife, a memoir published by Picador and available in uh, quality bookstores uh, in your neighborhood. <laughs> Thanks again.